welcome to Western Reaches episode 31. I'm one of your hosts, Seth, and with me as always is Megan. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about The Stone Sky as our main topic, which is the new book by N.K. Jemisin. It's the third book in the Broken Earth trilogy. Um, but first off, we're going to be talking about catching up on books and games, like we always do. So, Megan, what have you been reading lately? Not a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to say that I was super excited for The Stone Sky. I read it relatively quickly, um, and we will have spoilers in the end of this because you kind of can't talk about this book at all without doing spoilers. So yeah. if you're interested in reading the trilogy, and like I'm often a person that says things are better if you know the spoilers sometimes, but that's I don't think that's the case here if you at all plan to read this trilogy, and if we haven't convinced you yet, I think it might be a lost cause, but you really should read it, <laughs> um, <laughs> then you should start at the fifth season and then catch up and listen later, because some of the reveals and things are will be much better if you know the context. Yeah, definitely agreed. Um, so I read Halo Retribution, which came out, um, yesterday, and it's the new Veda Lopez book by Troy Denning, since the follow-up to Last Light, which I really enjoyed, because it was about a detective adopting three Spartan children, which is not literally true, but they literally <laughs> call her mom numerous times in It's uh, such a good book. Yeah, I still remember my favorite part is the part where the Spartans are like all crawling around the side of a mountain in the mud and the rain and it's horrible, and the Spartans are hand signaling each other, and they have this like whole conversation in hand signals, and Veda doesn't know the hand signals yet, but she knows that like they're trying to be quiet, so she just chucks a glob of mud at the back of Olivia's head. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Olivia turns around and is like, yeah, what's up? <laughs> and <laughs> so um, I really like that team dynamic, and I continued to really like it. Retribution um, is very much feels like the middle book of a trilogy, which um, I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that there is potential for another book. Um, it, it seems very much like they're setting up another book, which I'm happy. I'm happy to keep going with these characters. It's They go a little bit into uh, Forerunner stuff, a little bit into a Halo 5 character, who I didn't expect to see, but it was neat to see. Um, I love the ferrets. There were parts where it was kind of hard to picture things, whether that's because of the writing or because... It was like there's a, a zero gravity scene that I was kind of having trouble picturing where people were, and there was a sort of intentionally confusing forerunner base, um, both of which where I was like, I really just want to see this in the game. I want to know what this would look like. Um, but generally, it was good. I, Saf, what did you think about Veda and kind of the way they dealt with her trauma, essentially, in Last Light? Oh my god, I can barely even remember that. Um, <laughs> I actually don't remember much about the trauma part of it. My mind kind of locked onto her and the Spartans and remembered that. Yeah, well, it was... I had to go back and look at the first book because I'd forgotten how... Basically how bad her past was. Um, the emphasis was on that she was claustrophobic because she was kidnapped. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, she was kidnapped as a teen and, like, held underground for, like, three weeks. And it's strongly implied that there was some real bad stuff that happened with her. And I kind of forgot how bad it was. And I went back to the first book and went, oh, yeah, like, she definitely, like, she's, she doesn't like being touched. Like, she definitely has more symptoms than just the claustrophobia, but they were kind of downplayed. And that came back in the second book in a way that I thought was handled well, but cursorily. There were several parts in this that I felt kind of like, I love Halo books, but they're, I, I always tell people they're like the beach reads of science fiction. Like, they're not deep. <laughs> um, and so in terms of her history and kind of, the resolution of her history, and then also some moments about just the actual war, like the degree to which Spartans are really flipping around weapons, <laughs> was kind of like, if this was a more serious science fiction book, I think more weight would have been given to these things, and me, as a person who's kind of reevaluating what my relationship with Halo is, which, like, it's been really important to me for a long time, um... But I'm kind of trying to decide how I see it as someone who's, I've been in, into this for like almost 10 years or more. So of course my relationship with it will change a little bit. But um, there were definitely parts where it kind of left me wondering like, I want more about the impacts of this, but that's, this book isn't the right place for it. Yeah, that's. That's, yeah, interesting to hear from you. I hadn't really thought about that, but I kind of agree that I kind of get that from the Halo books as well. Um, like, there are certain characters or certain situations that they kind of, yeah, it doesn't get too deep because it is just a Halo book. Um, they're not yeah. about <laughs> the deep relationship so much, which I, yeah, I think I would like it, but also it wouldn't feel like Halo, kind of. Yeah, it wouldn't be the same. Like, I don't mean to turn this into a Halo therapy session, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe another time for that. But you can tell that it's the characters are all so used to living in wartime that the war itself isn't a trauma to them. It's just a it's it's literally just a job for the Spartans and. As I grow up, I see that in a different way, I guess, because Halo is very much a product of, like, early 2000s kind of American bravado, and when I was first growing up with it, I didn't really see it as, I mean, not in the way that, like, Call of Duty is, for example, which is very blatantly, like, kind of set in the real world. It's not a direct map onto anything, but it's this sort of escapist military fantasy, and I want, this book especially tried to attempt to interrogate the idea of the weight of casualties. And, like, there's a conversation where Veda is not willing to lose civilians. And another character is, basically, says, like, well, for the good of the mission, it's either us or them. You know, we have to, someone is going to die here. And Veda's very struck by this, but there's no real, um, like, fallout, <laughs> which is a terrible 
terrible pun, and I think I'm done talking <laughs> about this now. But uh, um, I do want to jump into that quickly because that's something I've kind of noticed. Um, I've been re-listening to Hunt the Truth, which was the podcast they did in the lead up to Halo Five, and that's something that Halo keeps trying to like interrogate, like. In Halo 5, like, in the lead-up to Halo 5, they're like, is Chief really a hero? All these people die and blah, blah, blah. And in Hunt the Truth, it's like, Oni kidnapped these children and made clones and killed all these civilians for all these reasons. And it keeps getting close to something of being like, this isn't good, and then kind of just loses it. Like, goes back to, like, it's still a fun game, though, um, even in the fiction around it. And that's that's one thing I've definitely noticed while listening to Hunt the Truth is that... They keep trying to make Oni the villain and, like, evil and trying to be like, yes, they killed all these people and it's not good. But they can't quite do that because of how it's set up. Yes, because it would reshuffle too much. And yeah, I say this as, like, I really like Sarah Nosman. I think she's a cool character. I think her arc's really interesting. But she kind of keeps showing up in these books as a villain, essentially. And you keep hearing, like, more and more terrible things that Oni has done, and I like to be able to say, like, yeah, Halo has a rich, expanded universe, it has, there's a lot going on under the surface of the games that you get if you read the books, all of which are true, but that also means that you've got these more and more sort of crimes are piling up under Oni, and I don't know if we'll ever get any kind of resolution to that. Yeah, it would be kind of cool if Halo 6 dealt with that, but I don't think it will. Yeah. I really wonder, we're in such a weird place with Halo 6 because we know nothing about it at all. So there's no, like with Star Wars, it's a big marketing point to say, oh, this book has a connection to The Last Jedi. This book has a connection to the Han Solo movie, you know, theoretically. But um, with Halo, there's none of that. There's no backwards looking, this might have a clue to Halo 6. Not yet, because they're playing it too close to the chest. So instead, we've got these side stories that aren't, that don't have enough of an overarching, like, ending for there to be any moral comeuppance. And we saw that in Halo 5 a little too, which is, then you get into, like, Karen Travis's tendency to philosophize (laughs) in her books. So that could be a whole other thing. I'm going to, like, know the thesis to this essay in about five years and it's going to be way too late (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) anyway retribution was a good book (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad to hear that because i'm really excited for that book yeah none of this is to say that it's not a fun adventure story um if you like last light i think you like retribution um do go into it thinking of it as the second book in a trilogy, not a conclusion to a duology. Okay, cool. Yes. Um, And then, so I read Last Song Before Night, which was a high fantasy book. Um, It's a highly recommended. Um, Fran Wilde did a blurb for it, which is part of why I picked it up. And I think... It just concreted the idea that I need to stop giving high fantasy a chance because it's just not for me. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, no offense to the genre as a whole. <laughs> it's just not for me. Um, the writing in this, it was about, um, a world sort of a Mediterranean inspired city where poets and bards, essentially people who play instruments and sing are 
the magic users in that world and like songs have magic and I and magic has like faded and there's this one girl is trying to bring it back and I really like the idea the prose was fine um the thing is that I couldn't get attached to any of the characters I didn't I just didn't like them as people. They weren't necessarily bad, but they weren't, um, I couldn't really attach to them at all. There was a part where I realized that, like, every one of them had a significant other, and every one of them left their significant other behind to go on the quest. And there was one relationship where I was like, I don't understand what the relationship between these two people are. Like, they were living together but I didn't know whether they were not a romantic couple or if they were both gay or if they were a romantic couple because the author just made it very vague. And then they had this moment where first he says he, he was never attracted to her and then he kisses her and they're both straight. And I was just very confused. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and again, that's a very personal, like I, I tend to want to be able to, like, I felt like I didn't know the characters as well as I could have, and maybe if that, like, I, maybe if the relationship stuff doesn't, you don't need it to be as clear-cut as I prefer it to be, that wouldn't really bother you, but the characters, I felt like they didn't really care about each other, um, whether they were, um, couples or, like, the main two kind of never, it was like a man and a woman who bantered and, physically pushed each other and but also were kind of attracted to each other and it was like they, if they don't care about each other why do I care about them so I ended up kind of flipping through the end because it just it didn't do it for me um I wish I had better <laughs> things to say about it because I think it's got really good reviews obviously a lot of people really like the characters but I just couldn't get into it there's yeah there's not much you can do when it comes to not being able to get into a genre I guess I'm kind of the same I I've tried high fantasy so many times and I just can't do it yeah and I think just the fact that we're going to spend about an hour praising N.K. Jemison means <laughs> quite a lot because her fantasy tends to be it, it's not really what I would think of as high fantasy which is like that sort of European set setting with like monarchs and with people that sort of argue among themselves like it's the exact opposite of that it's a lot about magic and a lot about really strong relationships and a really unique world and I don't I typically don't find that in like what I would think of as, as being called high fantasy would you would you agree yeah I definitely agree I think it comes from diversity of writing somewhat um like a lot of high fantasy is written by you know just white writers who like fantasy stuff um and so it kind of all kind of ends up being like it's not all the same but it still kind of falls into the same things often which is why like when someone's like oh this is high fantasy I can generally be like I probably won't like that because most high fantasy is not my jam um, I mean, for what it's worth, I, I don't know, I know nearly nothing about the author who's called Ilana Meyer, but this did certainly seem to be in that sort of medieval Europe tradition. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. Inka Jemison just has a really unique style and approach to it, which I think is, yeah, and the focus on characters and, like, their relationships really is what made me love these books. Yeah. Um, so that's that's all. Um, not reading too much right now. So those are my, my picks for this week. How about you, Seth? <laughs> so I'm currently also reading a Halo book. I'm reading Halo Hunters in the Dark because I've been slowly catching up on Halo books. I think I mentioned one last week. Um, it started off really exposition-y. Like, it was kind of felt like it was written for someone who had never played Halo before and was like, this is what Halo is and these are what all these things mean. And I'm like, as much as I appreciate writing for a wide audience and trying to introduce people to Halo, I'm kind of like, can we not do this in books written for Halo fans? (laughs) Because it's so annoying, like, tricking through, like, I think it was the first four chapters just felt so heavy in exposition and like characters would just say things out loud like straight up explain things i'm like okay like i i don't know it just was really annoying um but now it's gotten into like they've opened up the portal to go to the ark and things are happening and i'm like cool and it's got some great saint Haley characters which i'm always here for um i think at least one of them has been in a previous book i'm really bad at their names because i got apostrophes and stuff but um yeah I, I'm liking it more now that it's getting into Forerunner stuff. Cool. I do... That's interesting that you say that it's written more for, like, beginner, because I can't... Like I said, Halo is kind of in my blood, so I don't know what it feels like to not know about this stuff, but um, yeah. it's... Not a lot of them do that. Like, I even the the short story collection, which I think is a decent... Excuse me, a decent place to start... It doesn't really have a lot of exposition. I just wonder what the conversation there was or the motive of the writer. Like, why is that one a little different? Yeah, I find that weird. Um, I don't actually know. That one was a after Halo 4 book, I think. Okay. I think... I could be wrong. (laughs) Because I'm pretty sure I read all the books up to when Halo 4 came out. It came out in 2015, so yeah, after... No, that's a different book. That's a different Hunters in the Dark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not actually sure, but yeah, most, most I remember, like, that was one thing I really liked about the Halo books, is they kind of just threw you into the universe with no explanation. And when I was first getting into them, um, which I think was the year after Halo 4 come out, came out, I'm not entirely sure, um, I read through them oh, all, that, like, in a, in a fury. Yeah, Sorry, I can't I really realize... <laughs> I mean, I've been playing Halo for years, but I never really realized there were books. Like, I never thought about it. And then I saw Halo Glasslands in the airport bookstore, and I was like, ooh, Halo books. So I picked it up and started reading that. And then I was like, huh, okay, Halo books are pretty cool. I like, I do love Halo. I want to read more books. So I just kind of read them all in, like, a fury of reading. Um, and, yeah, like, all of the original books, like, Cole Protocol and all those things were just, like... They just throw you into it, and you're just in the universe. And that's what I like about the books, is when they do that. But that's why this kind of stuck out to me, for being so, like, exposition-y and basic in its explanation of Halo. I was kind of like, this isn't normal, and I don't entirely like how middle grade it kind of felt at times by doing it. Like, there are definitely better ways to do exposition that aren't, like, so simplistic, I guess. Yeah, it's that, um... 
sort of the same problem I had with one of the stories in the short story collection was that it sort of felt like it was almost written for a middle grade novel. And I don't remember Hunters in the Dark well enough. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be a relatively forgettable book, but it's got Cool Sang Haley, which is what I'm here for, pretty much. The next thing on your list is a book called Tell the Wolves I'm Home, which I just want to say is an incredible title, and I'm Googling it right now. <laughs> yeah, that was a book that one of my good friends recommended me when I was in Wellington. Um, it's their favorite book, I think. And it's it was recommended to me with the caveat that like it's a little bit weird, and it's like slightly incestuous, but not really. Um, and it's basically about, uh, I think a 14 year old girl who has a really close relationship with her uncle, who's a gay man and he has AIDS. Um, and so he's, he dies really early on in the book. Like, it's not really a spoiler to say that he dies because that's what the book is about. Um, but he was an artist and she gets contacted by his boyfriend that she never knew about. And so it's a book about her dealing with her uncle's death, dealing with, growing out of childhood, her relationship with her sister and her parents, um, her parents' relationships with others in the family as well. And it's, yeah, it's about coping with loss and adulthood and separation and learning that your parents don't always tell you the truth and that they hide things from you and that parents are also people. And it's a really powerful book. Like, it's written as if you were actually reading, like, a well-written 13-year-old kind of thing. Wow. Um, it it had the kind of style that, like, what was the book recently um, with the autistic main character? Yeah, the one about the end of the world. Yeah, that one. It, it, it read very similarly to that. What was um, the name of that book? I really liked it. I can't it. remember. Like, it was oh, a really good book. Yeah, I'll Something about it. the edge of everything. I don't know. <laughs> it was really good, though. But yeah, it, it felt really similar to that, except it was first person. I don't think that book was. Maybe it was. No, it was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it kind of captured that same, like, desperate wanting to do well but not knowing how to kind of thing. Oh, interesting. And yeah, it's... On the edge I of I found gone. it really emotional. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it. It felt similar to that, except it's not sci-fi in any way. Um, yeah, it, it's a really good book. And I think reading that like when I was a teen I would have resonated with it heaps because I you know I also was dealing with loss and like growing up and all that kind of stuff um and it captures those feelings really well at least personally for me um yeah I, I really liked it even just from the blurb that I read it looks like it's incredibly atmospheric yeah it really is um is yeah it like, and then is it a downer like is it sad in a personal way or sad in a literary sort of way or ultimately uplifting? I think it's it's definitely sad at times, both personally and generally. Um, I did cry a couple times, but it ends, like, it is a hopeful book. Like, it's about learning how to deal with th these things and growing up and being okay with that. Um, so in the end, it kind of has those feelings of life goes on and things will be good. And, like, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because that kind of tells me, like, do I need to be emotionally prepared if I'm going to read it? <laughs> <laughs> I would say be a bit emotionally prepared. I did cry a little bit. <clears throat> um, 
And then I also read Lightless because you talked about it last time. And I was like, that sounds really cool. And the library had it. (laughs) Yeah, that was a really, I didn't actually know what to expect because you talked about it a little bit, but I wasn't quite sure what it was actually about. (laughs) So I I got it without really knowing anything. Um, And I was like, surely there's AI in this because of, (laughs) because Megan recommended it. Um, Surely. (laughs) surely and it's on a spaceship and i kind of had like kind of the same issue you had with um retribution i had trouble like picturing what anything looked like because they kept describing the ship and i was like what does this look like and of course the cover didn't have a picture of the ship on it so i just had no clue like they were like it's a spiral shell shape and i was just like what the heck kind of ship is this so i spent a lot of the book whenever they were like they ran down the halls being like are they spiraling halls what is i don't understand but Apart from that, the book was really good. Um, I didn't... The characters were, like... I liked the main character. And and Thea? Althea. 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 I liked her, yeah, a lot. She was really cool. And I really liked the engineer dude, too, but I can't remember his name. Um, I never knew where I stood with any of the characters, because, like, when you're from Althea's point of view, like, she has some very definite thoughts on people. But when you're from someone else's, it's like... Are they are they actually the person she thinks they are, or are they something else? So you spend a lot of the book kind of switching between knowing what Althea knows and then not knowing what else there is, which yeah. I found really interesting and cool. There's this incredibly even-handed approach to the morality of the the their terrorists, like that's just what they're called in the text, right? The yeah. the ones um, Ivan and Maddie. There's this incredible like lack of judgment from the text itself, which means, but at the same time, some of the content is very clearly, like, they've done bad things, and there's, like, horrible things happening in the solar system elsewhere, but Ananki and Althea kind of are disconnected from those things. So, part of what I liked about it so much, and unfortunately, a a promise that I don't think panned out in the series as a whole, is this discussion of who's the good guy here. Yeah, I... Is it worth reading the other books? They're very different. Um, the second, I would say it's definitely worth reading the second book, um, mostly because I want to yell about it with you. <laughs> um, it is good. Um, the third one, like like if I, what I said last time, it's, it's very weird because it focuses mostly on Ivan and Maddie and like hardly on Altea at all, whereas she goes through a really dramatic thing in the second book, which is then, like, never addressed, which was so jarring to me that I don't really feel that I can speak about it as a whole without being biased by the fact that that was not what I wanted. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll at least read the second book then, because I'm curious about out there and Anank, and I want to know more about that. (laughs) I still have such fondness for the I guess the series as a whole, even though my feelings about Supernova are so conflicted, when I got my copy of Lightless signed, because I'd read the second one at that point, um, C.A. Higgins signed it and said, like, thanks for reading, and then wrote, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) But I am still very fond of those characters. Yeah, I really liked it. It was it was a little bit different from things I've been reading recently, and that was it was good. It was very good. Yeah. yeah so that's that's all the books for me. Um, 
what have you been playing recently? Yeah, so not much. Uh, just because it's been only a week since our last episode, I kind of, I'm still like tootling around in New Game Plus for Horizon Zero Dawn, but nothing really new to report there. And then I played like one level of Monument Valley 2, which I've had it on my phone forever and finally started to play. And it is delightful. It already has a lot more story than the first one. It The atmosphere is beautiful. It's, um, it has a lot more, like, action going on in the scenes. So along with the puzzle, you'll have, like, water dripping or, like, leaves blowing or something. So the world Ooh. looks a little more complete. And all of that is to say, like, this isn't a game with a rigorous world. It's a, it's a little puzzle game. But it's really pretty and the music is really good. And I hope to have more to report when I finish it. Oh, I'm so jealous. I'm so I'm so excited to hear more of your thoughts on it because I really want to play it when it eventually comes out on Android or maybe I crack and buy an iPhone. Who knows? If we end up in the same place, I will um, let you borrow mine. Perfect. <laughs> um, I played a few games recently. Two for podcast reasons. Um, I played Dream Daddy, which is the dad dating sim, which I don't have super much to report on. It's just a very wholesome dating game with cute art. Um, Does it live <laughs> up to the hype? I mean, I guess. I wasn't super hyped for it, so I didn't have hype for it to live up to. Uh, my biggest issue with it is that it's made in Fungus and Unity, and it has, like, Fungus has, like, this default sound that it uses when text comes up and the little text dialogue things, and I hate it so much because I've prototyped so many things in Fungus, and I've heard that sound so many times, <laughs> and when I hear it, I just get real mad. I feel like that's the theme lately. Sap hates the Fungus sound. <laughs> it's so bad. I'm so sorry. Uh, and they don't have a way to turn it off yet, so I, I just kind of, ha- I just muted the entire game and listened to music in the background instead. Um, it's really cute. It's got some, it's got, you can tell it's a dating sim written by people who haven't made a game before by the way some of the choices are built and um, some of the ways it's written, but I don't say that as like a bad thing. It's still a good game, but if you <laughs> play a lot of dating sims or like visual novels, it will stand out with some of its issues, I think. Um Otherwise, it's cute. I, I can't really say much else apart from that. Um, I also played that Dragon Cancer for another podcast, and I've been meaning to play this one for ages, but I was kind of waiting until my um, my death phobia had calmed down enough that I knew it wouldn't like set me off. And mm. I played it with my bestie, and <laughs> the first thing we did in the game, because it starts off in a little vignette where you're um, playing as Joel, the, like that Dragon Cancer is an autobiographical, mostly autobiographical game, um, made by the parents of a boy who was dying of cancer. Um, and so it's a game about them dealing with him dying. Uh, so it's a very heavy game and is quite emotional at times. And so the first vignette is like, you play as Joel throwing bread to a duck and we hit the duck with some bread and the duck like 
disappeared. Like it fell into the water and died, basically, which I think was a glitch. Oh no! Um, so we started the game just both laughing and just screaming, "Oh no, we killed the duck!" Which was probably not the best way to start a game like that. Yeah, but it breaks <laughs> up the sadness, I suppose. It does. It starts us off with you know some some joy. Um, it like as a game, it's very. I feel like it could have done more with the interactivity. But on the other hand, it's an autobiographical story that's, like, trying to tell a particular thing. And so I'm, like, I'm not going to judge it in any way for, like, how it's made because it's it's a personal story and at times it is really powerful. Um, the biggest thing I had with it that kind of disconnected me from it is that it's, like, the two parents both have a very strong relationship with their Christianity um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of it speaks about their faith and, like, their struggles with faith as their son is dying. And I couldn't personally connect with that because I've never been religious. But I don't disparage the game for having that or for them talking about that because for them that is an important part of that relationship. Um, but for me, as a player and somebody wanting to engage with the story, it was a little bit difficult for me. Interesting. That's I do feel like that game's a bit too heavy for me. I think I would sort of check out emotionally before I was able to really engage with it. But yeah. I do, I am, it would be interested in the, the kind of questions they raise about Christianity and something like that in a game format. Yeah. A lot of it is like just hearing them talk about it or like reading things they've written. Um, there was like a really, the one bit that was most powerful to me, I think is like, there's, a bit where Amy, the mother, is like on a boat in like a flooded area with Joel, and she's talking about how like her faith, like she's completely diving into her faith, and like she's like, I know my son is going to die, but there could still be a miracle kind of thing. But even if there's not, I un- I guess I accept that, and I accept like what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's talking about how much like she loves God and everything, whereas her husband is drowning in the flood, and he's refusing to climb into the boat. He's like. I just want, just let me feel this. Like, I have to feel this kind of thing. And he's, like, refusing to engage with how she's feeling her grief, but she's also refusing to engage with how he is. And I I really like that bit because it shows how much different people do cope with those situations and why people can clash at those times because they don't understand the, how the other person has to feel to deal with it. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah. Very heavy game. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then I also played Sabelle, which is a game I've been meaning to play for ages as well. It's a short, it's a really short narrative game um, that's also autobiographical, I think, uh, written by Nina Freeman, I think, um, who's a game developer. That name and sounds familiar. Yeah, she went on to work elsewhere after this. I can't remember where else she works. <laughs> um, but yeah, she she does games like about sexuality and she, oh she works at fulbright. fulbright yeah yeah she went on to gone home um yeah, yeah it's and tacoma yeah that's yeah. why i know that name okay yeah and i can see why because she's a really powerful writer uh and the game is like it's it's about a relationship a character's first love like a person's first love built through an mmo and meeting that person for the first time um so it's about like the expectations of relationships and of sex and of love and building those things and like when when you're young and how things can happen and so it's kind of built the main thing is you 
are you have her desktop so you can like click around look at her selfies and her poems and everything and then you can play the game which is like it's just a background for the conversations that the characters have so you're just sitting there like clicking on stuff and it's really cute art and it's not like it's done in a way so like between the messages the character sent and the conversation she's having with uh i can't remember his name itchy i think or blake um between those you're never like too focused on the game and it gets boring because it it's a basic game um and the conversations like it it feels very real like it's a very authentic game you can kind of tell it's based off of real experiences because as i was going through it i was like oh some of these conversations could be taken ad lib from things when i was a teenager <laughs> um <laughs> not all of it but some things i heard and i was like oh i've been there i know this feeling from like online relationships when you're younger like not necessarily romantic ones just ones in general with friends and yeah. i think it particularly speaks as well for like female gamers who have been in online like places when they were in teens teen years because there's a lot of that like guys just being like hey pal you're real pretty send me a picture we're just friends haha kind of thing and i'm like oh yeah that sounds very familiar (laughs) um yeah it was it was a very real game but it was quite a i kind of wish it'd been longer because i got really sucked into it and then it just ended and i was like no i want more it's so good I, I did hear of that before, and that's kind of, I haven't played it yet, but what drew me in was that pitch of, like, the experience of being a girl on the internet in, like, when when I was young, or maybe even a little bit before, I don't know how old she is, but that idea of, like, this is what it's like to be on a message board, and it sounded like it had really, um like, natural dialogue, and that sounded really interesting. Yeah, it feels very natural and very real, which I was, I wouldn't say I was surprised by it, because I didn't actually really know what I was getting into when I played it, but I didn't expect it to be so, like, it kind of feels like you're just listening to two people talk, like in real life. Cool. Um, I, so, I completely forgot until just now that I posted a Twine game this week, so (laughs) if we want to, I can talk about that, um. You should definitely talk about that. I haven't played it yet, but I have it pinned, and I plan on playing it when I have some more free time, so you should definitely talk about it. Yeah, that's so it's been basically all summer I've been working on it. Um, it's just sort of a um, portfolio thing that to sort of prove to people that I can write fiction um, because I'm trying to work on selling more fiction. But I, I like the idea of making games because Twine is a very accessible platform. It's very easy to host. And because I think it's fun. It's fun to learn how to write branching narratives <laughs> and to make something that people can experience. And it was really cool because the first, one of the first people that I had played through it, like before I'd had it like cleaned up for typos and stuff, I wanted people to beta it basically. And he said, Oh, the first run through, I, I got, like, the bad ending, like, the you're probably gonna die ending, so then he went through and found, and, like, tried, actively tried to get a good ending and got the good ending, and I was like, yes, it's exactly what I want people to do. I want people to realize that there are good and bad endings and kind of realize, because there's a very consistent theme of what leads you to the good ending, and I want people to figure that out, because that's kind of the, like, moral thematic thing I wanted going on so it was really cool to get that feedback um but it's 
it's a science fiction game very much inspired by Mass Effect about a alien cargo pilot who gets uh, into a crash with the emperor of the solar system and accidentally finds herself involved with a human political conspiracy. And it's pretty short. It's probably 20 minutes, 15 minutes if you read it, you know, as it was a short story. But there are four endings, and with some different permutations. There's generally four, but, like, it's, it ended up... Uh, so, when you taught me about Twine Games first, I was like, you said don't get too ambitious. Map out all <laughs> of your endings so that you know exactly how many endings you have. And I didn't map this one out as specifically as the other one. So, by the time I got to the end, I was like, I regret. This is why she told me to map these out. Because now I've got to write 16 endings. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, I learned that lesson. And they're generally... There are four main, like, categories of endings. And then there are, like, tone variations and, like, sentence variations in between there. But, um... I'm glad I posted it, I guess. I don't really have too much more to add than that. It's available on my Twitter if you want to play it. It's a, like I said, sort of a Mass Effect-inspired science fiction game. And, like, Bioware style in that you dialogue choices. And you have, like, you can choose which direction to go. And uh, I'm happy it's done. I definitely pushed myself to do it and have this very specific goal in mind of I want to do it before the summer's done and I want to be able to use it as part of a portfolio. So I'm glad that happened. I'm really excited to play it. I really liked your first one that you did, so I'm keen for this, especially because it's sci-fi. <laughs> Thank you. It's very different from the first one, but it's been nice to be getting some encouragement on the first one. Like I've just now kind of started talking to other writers about the first one and i've gotten some good feedback so that's very encouraging that's so cool um i'm gonna make sure there's a link to this game in the show notes so if you want to play it check it out there and then let's get into our big topic the stone sky because i'm very excited to talk about this thing so this thing this book this thing this event in my life (laughs) <laughs> it was an event. I was so excited for it. It was. And like, then, like, counting down the days. Yes. And then, like, two days later, they announced that there's going to be a fifth season TV show. Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is just great timing, and I cannot wait for this TV show. I don't know how I'm going to get it, because I don't have cable, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm so like, I don't know how I'm going to get this in New Zealand, but I, I will find a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm really curious to see how they do the stone eaters, just because of the way, like, whenever they describe how they move in the book, I'm just like, I can't picture that. So I'm really interested to see how they do a lot of the, the kind of more magic stuff in the show. Yeah, I want to see how the stone eaters move. I definitely imagine them as being sort of blurry. And like, what does their skin look like? Because this book described the stone sky specifically described them as looking a little more human than we've heard in the past i'm like what do they actually look like because they're yeah. not they're like sort of statuish but they have natural hair that flows and they have like warm skin but they look like stone but sometimes they can be mistaken for people so i'm not quite sure yeah i don't know i i don't know but it was yeah, I'm really excited for the TV show. And I'm excited that like a book like this is getting that attention and getting a TV show because this is the kind of thing I want to see. 
Yeah. And that is that goes back to where um what we were talking about before with genre because I do think it's like obviously the hot thing to say now is oh it's a Game of Thrones style epic fantasy <laughs> show. And I don't watch Game of Thrones, so I might be like just full of hot air here. But I think that mm, fifth fifth season is gritty in the same way. It's like got realistic elements to it in terms of the characters are very realistic, like they react like people and not like fantasy tropes and it's got like it would be r-rated if you filmed it um it's just got content wise it's suitable for that like high budget like adult audience but um on the other hand the tone is from what i know is really different and it's more episodic well not more episodic now i'm really getting into like (laughs) i'm not sure how uh i'm supposed to say this but like it's not as epic, but it's it's all about the world, right? It's all about the the planet itself. So how are yeah. they how are they gonna show that? I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know. I got a little off track there. Yeah, I know what you mean, though. Yeah, yeah. It's um, definitely got a very different tone to Game of Thrones. I mean, I don't watch it anymore, but I watched it long enough, and yeah, it's oh. it is like an epic kind of thing, but definitely not in the same way it's like it's it's definitely character focused but it's also yeah very focused on the planet and the just the world in general it's yeah, yeah it's a really interesting book because it's like it's this book in particular made me go is this like <laughs> like fantasy sci-fi because it feels like i can never quite name the genre because even though it is i kind of jokingly called a hard fantasy because yeah. it like <laughs> It, it does the thing that high-end sci-fi does where it, like, explains everything with, like, actual science. <laughs> and, like, they use – they talk about the scientific terms of, like, geology and that kind of stuff and, like, volcanoes and all that kind of thing. And I'm always just like, it is fantasy, but it doesn't feel like fantasy. <laughs> I, I would absolutely call it hard fantasy. I agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's actually what I was trying to say when I was stumbling my way around not knowing what Game of Thrones is, um, is that – is is this high fantasy? It's going, we're going back to that question. And I, again, I would also cite the science as a reason for why it's not because it focuses so much on the magic and then it explains that magic as it's actually these geological forces. And it's this manipulation of heat and this manipulation of pressure and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting, like, genre thing and yeah like i said like this book in particular made me go it's got like it's a little bit sci-fi at times Mm -hmm. it's i think it's like fantasy for science fiction readers yeah i would agree with that yeah so i think now probably why we like it (laughs) yeah it it is it really is um but i guess now we're formally into the spoiler section so yeah let's spoil this book yeah this is our official Spoiler warning, which is <laughs> that the first chapter goes into what the world used to be, and it's definitely not our world. Yeah. Well, it might still be, though, because even with the stuff in, like, the f- the past the past stuff, they even then have talked, they talk about, like, further past stuff with, like, concrete buildings and stuff, and it's very, a very few throwaway lines about it. But I'm like, every time they do, I'm like is this Earth just very far, very, 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 very far in the future? Like, is this a more advanced human in the past? (laughs) That's a long time ago. Yeah, I'm always, like, it's 
probably not, but every now and then they do like throw something in there that makes me think that maybe it is just really far future. And I'm like, hmm. There, there were the mentions of concrete, but I guess the two things that made me think that it wasn't our world is that um, the the what's the word the bleh, sorry. Um, not tectonics, the continents. That's the word. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, the continents are not shaped the same way at all, and there seems to be smaller, like the surface area. Even if you made our world into, like, Pangea again, the surface area would still be smaller. Um, and then there was the, uh, the mention of oil reserves. There's a part where somebody, I don't remember who, somebody cracks open an oil reserve, and it's, like, this huge pool of oil under the ocean and so it was sort of to me it was implying that oil was never mined or never refined in this world at all because there were just huge pockets of it lying around and i kind of That's liked, a good point um i liked that idea that it was not a it was never based on oil at all the en- energy industry was completely different because instead of fossil fuels they used these creatures you know these genetically engineered animals and things yeah yeah i think yeah it's supposed it's it i think it's probably supposed to like kind of hint at it and then kind of not because maybe it's i don't know i don't know i liked the way that it's kind of ambiguous about that but you can tell like at least now it's definitely not the same earth and it wasn't back then either in like the first chapter like that time yeah i was so surprised to see a map because there'd never been a map in any other of the books oh was there a map in this book yes oh this i I had the audiobook so i didn't know oh my god that's amazing (laughs) yeah in the um the uh, ibook edition and presumably in the physical edition as well there was a map it was Delightful. Oh, that's so cool. I'm going to have to buy the actual book of this. So, let's talk about um, Anagist, which Silanagist. Oh, thank you. See, the thank good you. thing is I know how to say everything. <laughs> I just don't know how to spell any of it. <laughs> right, because audiobook. So yeah, how did like, they pronounce Hoa's name versus Hoa's so, old name? Hoa... <sighs> How did they spell his old name? It was like H O U A U or something. Okay, it had a lot of vowels. I I thought they were spelt the same, but they were just pronouncing it slightly differently. Because I think in the original one, it's just like Hoa as opposed to Hoa kind of thing. Yeah, it's like yeah, more of a sense. kind of a dragon like Hoa kind of. Yeah, yeah, deeper vowel kind of sound. Like all of them kind of like Gehua and stuff like that. I was always like, whenever she said the names, I was just like. How do you spell that? Because it sounds really cool. <laughs> well, I mean, in the notes here. See, you're going to have to help me. 2E, <laughs> please pronounce all those words for me. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know how yeah. to say a lot of the names because of the consonants. Yeah, but, no, that's totally fair. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I really liked how the style Anagist was set up. As it, it reminds me a lot of the ones who walk away from Omalas because it's all about how a like apparently idyllic society is built upon the backs of like this oppressed minority, which is such an important theme. It's like what this entire trilogy has been about, and I just thought that was a really powerful way to kind of really drive that theme home and also just 
the I love good world building where it just slowly <laughs> reveals what's going on and it does have this like scientific rigor to it. It reminds me of um uh Sherry Tepper. She does that really well too. Oh yeah. Yeah. So those whole scenes with the ni- the niece and the nais. I think it's the the Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the um Western reaches listen to Megan try to pronounce words from the stillness. <laughs> Um, and, like, the creation of the origins and the creation of the Stone Eaters was really interesting. Yeah, this book kind of, because the first two books kind of hint at stuff, like, they hint at the past stuff and all that, and it, this book, this final book, wrapped everything together so well, like, I didn't entirely expect to get, like, the origin of the Stone Eaters and them actually being, like, super important to everything going on. I was like, they're just in this planet because of whatever. Yeah, Um, (laughs) because fantasy. (laughs) Yeah, because fantasy. I didn't expect it to be, like, the first chapter is about them in the past and, like, it's about Hoa in the past and what happened to lead up to everything happening now. And I was like, oh my, oh my god, this is actually, like, you can tell that there's everything was built really well beforehand and then written to lead up to it and kind of everything falls together really well. And I love it so much because all the stuff in Seal Anarchist, it's so different, but as like you, as I explain it and start telling that story in the past, like things start to fall together in a way that you're just like, Oh my God, (laughs) this is, this is amazing, but also terrifying. Yeah. And I've been saying this since the first book, but I think one of the things that she's really good at is using the genre such that she explains things you don't necessarily expect to have explained. Like, it would be very easy just to say, oh, they're, it's a fantasy creature because it's a fantasy world. But no, it's all explained. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, it was, I found it really really I don't even know what the word is I was gonna say like depressing um I don't know like I think I mentioned when I was talking about Obelisk Gate back when we talked about that book um the narrator Robin Miles I think for these audiobooks is like she's amazing she manages to capture so much emotion and like she gets the nuance of words that you feel Hoa's like entire history as the book is being narrated to you and she doesn't always talk as Hoa unless it's like actually him being like and blah 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 I did something or like when he's saying you in like a way he's actually talking to Isun no Nasun um she puts on a slightly different intonation in the way he pronounces words that you can tell it's him talking at that point and the way that the reveal happens that the obelisks were like that the bramble the bramble patch the yeah was actually like the nice bodies and the other stone eaters that they'd thrown away and it was just draining their lives and they were still alive and the way that was revealed through the audiobook and probably in the actual book i was just like floored just like mm-hmm. oh my god this is horrific but it makes so much sense that this is happening yeah it was it was so paced so well yeah it had some really good pacing and yeah it was really cool seeing seal energist and kind of getting explanations for everything pretty much the scene where the stone eaters are being brought out into the city for the first time and they're given makeup essentially to go 
so that they don't <laughs> like frighten people um, was so powerful to me and like so uncomfortable because I, I don't know if I'm like reading this interpretation or if it's if this is just like I don't know if this is what was intended but it, it reminded me of like actors wearing blackface like how people of one race are like dressed up to look like another because then the origin the the one that like protects them comes over and like scrubs it off and is like no this is humiliating you don't have to look like you don't have to look human and it i don't think it's a one to one comparison but it reminded me a lot of the this entire trilogy has been a discussion of who fits in where and how to uh, when people hide their identity, and I, I thought that was really interesting. And yeah, it was just, like, a I, really uncomfortable scene in it a good was. way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it was kind of interesting as well, because these books are very, like, it's very obvious from the start that a lot of, like, the most powerful race is, like, black characters, um, and... Hang on, I lost where I was going with that. Um, yeah, it's very obvious that that's kind of, like, the way the world is, um... And then, like, the Nias are fully white, like, they got the pale skin and the really light eyes and the light hair and everything, and they're the ones that are, like, <laughs> thrown into the bramble patch. The It's called something else, but I can't remember what it's called, but the brambles, um, pretty much, to, like, they're the lesser species, um, and then Hoa and the other Stonias were made in their image to be lesser as well. Like, they purposely made them to look like a lesser species, well, not a lesser species, like, but in their eyes, like a lesser race in their eyes, so that they would never be, they would never fit in to begin with. Um, I think said a lot about the races that created, the races, the society that created the Stone Eaters, and we're kind of destroying everything. Yeah, and the way they like very intentionally made it so that the people that lived in the city didn't really have to see what was being done in order to provide their their power. Yeah, it was very much a comment on um the way the way societies like yeah, build build upon oppressed people and lying to keep people comfortable. Um yeah. like I, I don't think I it, it does have like comments on the real world, but it's not exactly made to be like a commentary on the real world. Yeah, and like at the same time it wasn't a one to one comparison. It I think as the series went on, the commentary on race especially became more complicated not less yeah absolutely and i think that's partly like i'm not sure how much that's because of like it's trying to make comments on real world things or because those are real world things so they build up a strong world in a fiction as well yes if that makes sense yeah Yeah. and they were built up in a way that was it was not simplified at all yeah and it was, yeah, it wasn't simple and it wasn't based on, like, the typical <laughs> racial tropes you see in fantasy either, like, which was a good thing, a very good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's all that I have to say about the past stuff, except that it all comes together really wonderfully in the, in the yeah. finale. Yeah, I was wondering how it was all going to wrap up, and when it all happened, I was like, this is good. This is very good. Yeah, I'm like, how are they going to film this? How are they going to film the (laughs) the evil Earth stuff was kind of the one bit where I was like, I want more more hard fantasy here. I want more explanation, because I guess, like, why wouldn't the planet be sentient? There's no, again, fantasy. There's no reason why (laughs) that would be any less likely than anything else. 
But I wanted a little more um, explanation for that. And when she described the middle the core of the planet with, like, faces in it, I couldn't help but just picture the the MCP from Tron. The big, oh, like, my God, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I don't think is the comparison that was intended there, but it, it was what was happening in my head. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, let's talk a bit about the modern modern the modern day stuff in the actual book itself. Um there's Isun. I did have the right name. Isun. <laughs> the main character who we've been following through the books and the one that Hoa is talking to. Um she is still just amazing in this book. I love her so much. She's so like angry but so caring and she just she wants to do what's best, but she also just wants to like let her anger out sometimes. Um, yes. I thought, like, I think in this book, because I kind of forgot that once somebody learned magic and they're like, their thing, like, their body kind of aligned to it, that they couldn't use orogeny without the magic, like, eating their body, basically, and turning it to stone. I forgot that was a thing. And so when she kept being like, but I can't use my orogeny right now, I was like, but wait, what? Why? What? why can't you and then um and then she does use it and she loses like some of her body and I was like oh right okay yeah that makes sense um and so I think it was kind of cool to see that like her grow from like in the first two books she's this really powerful origin 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 who um is like I never really feared for her like one like present day as soon I never really feared for her because I was like she can she could take on anything she's pretty dang powerful um but then in this book like the stakes were kind of raised because she couldn't use her orogeny so she could end up in situations where either she would not use it and be in danger because of that or she could use it and like die faster basically yeah, it was sort of the textbook idea of that you need to limit your fantasy somehow, which is yeah. not to say that anything about the writing of this book was easy, far from it, but that's <laughs> what I, I remember reading a lot when I was young and reading guides to fantasy is that, like, you can't have your magic characters be all-powerful. There has to be some kind of limit or some kind of, like, deal you have to make in order to use magic, and that's exactly what this was. It was orogeny itself is relatively limitless as long as you have the the forces, you need the heat and things, then you can use it whenever you want. But magic itself requires this sort of pact with the stone eaters that's quite limiting because it is so powerful. Yeah, yeah. And that was it was an interesting way to see more of her character i really i still i love isun so much i see in the notes you wrote my hero i agree with that <laughs> especially by the end i had so many feelings and just i have such a vivid image of her you know turning to stone at the very end kind of reaching for her daughter and yeah. realizing how much she's done and it made me think a lot about my own mother both in terms of like she had a difficult time for part of her life and because also like Nassin feels like she was never really she her mother didn't really express love to her because they were they had to hide who they were they were in this really tough situation so like Essun could never really give as much love as Nassin needed but she also had so much love that she like went to the other side of the planet and died essentially for her daughter and 
it was, I thought that was really powerful and that the core of this, there was romance in it. Like, uh, Essun found like a partner and that was, I think, really good for her, but the story wasn't about that. It was about her and Nasun. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, that was really powerful for me too. And the way that it was narrated, like you could hear, oh, all the emotion in her voice when she would like call out to Nasun and Nasun, just oh my god i got so emotional through like all of that stuff because i love mother daughter things in fiction so much and this book yeah. gave me so much of it, it so um, much such a wealth it was of so mother daughter much. feelings <laughs> oh it was so good and like i loved how isun was ri- written in this book because she's a kid she's like what like 10 or something she's really young i think she's 11 in this book um but she's really young and she is definitely a kid so she makes decisions based off of kid logic and like <laughs> she's she's mature but she's still like immature kind of yeah um and so she'll do like she'll make mistakes and she'll do things that are kind of stupid but she's doing them because she totally believes that that's the right thing to do at that time and the way the book is written it's like it never judges her for that it's never like oh she's just a kid it's like she's a kid and that's why she's doing this but it doesn't mean it's a bad thing necessarily and i really liked how that was handled because a lot of books kind of take the way of like it's a child so they're gonna act like a kid and then that they're just a stupid kid kind of thing um every time she did something like even at the end when she was like i'm going to like kill everyone kind of thing you're just like i understand why you want to do this and i cannot judge you for making this choice because you've had a terrible life absolutely her ideas were never presented as irrational there was that part one of my favorite parts was when she kind of breaks down and it's the moment where she decides that in order to save, to try to save Shafa, she's going to basically destroy the earth. And she, the the writing has this moment where she very consciously realizes that her parents' unconditional love only led to suffering. So, and it said like the, the actual wording is like Shafa, the, uh, conditional love from a guardian is exactly what she needs and she knows that it's conditional and that's what's reassuring to her about it and that was like such an insightful sort of psychological construction i thought yeah the the kind of arc that they had with shafa kind of both with isun and nasun was really well done because i remember i hated shafa i mean obviously because he's he's the worst to nasun in the first book which you understand later on why he was like that because he kind of had to be um but like he's this awful loveless person to isun like he says he loves her and everything she feels it but he breaks her hand and he punishes her and she knows he will kill her if she does something wrong um and then in this book you get that very much like Nasun sees that of Isun. She sees her mother as someone who punished her and hurt her to protect her and couldn't love her to protect her. Um, and she... So she has this relationship with her mother where she's like, I know she loved me, but she hurt me and I'm scared of her. And then you get you get Shafa, who for Isun was that person, but for Nasun, he's like her father. Like, he loves her. Yeah. He will look after her. He won't hurt her. Like, he refuses to hurt her even when like his his brain is like you must hurt her he's like no i can't do that um and kind of watching shafa switch from one thing and then seeing how that made isun what she was but then also seeing how he switched for nasun and how he changed for that was really well done i was really caught on what was gonna happen to him because 
it's almost like the discussion that's going on about, like, does Kylo Ren deserve to be redeemed? Like, it was, does Shafa deserve to be redeemed? And <laughs> I think the answer to that was, he was not, he was, by the end, it wasn't that he went from being a bad person to being a good person. It was that he went from being a person who was manipulated to a person who, like, had to find out who he was because he had been freed of the evil earth. And now he was like, I'm really old and I don't know how to live like a human anymore. And I have to protect this girl. Um, while at the same time having this almost vampiric magical influence. And then at the end, he, he sort of became pathetic in the original sense of the word. Like you had, you felt pathos for him, right? Yeah. It wasn't like he became a hero, but he became, you, you had empathy for him. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, I was kind of curious how that was going to be handled too, and I think it was done well. Um, he kind of, in the end, it ended up being Esun, about Esun and Nasun, so like in the end, he, he affected how Nasun got to that point, but he ended up not being the deciding factor of anything, which I thought was nice. Yeah, the text didn't delight in punishing him, but neither did it focus on him when the actual finale came. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, so we also have Hoa, the Stone Eater, who was sticking with Isun this whole time, um, who we get a lot more backstory on and understand where he came from and why he's there. And we learn he's not actually <laughs> like an angry little Stone Eater teenager. He's actually very, very, very old. Mm-hmm. Very old. <laughs> and he's been through a lot. Yeah, which... Just, I kept thinking back to the beginning and when he first, like, emerged from his rock. And now I'm like, oh, you're so, you're such an old man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't really have too much to add about him other than what we talked about before. And the fact that, like, you kind of knew the scene where he was going to eat her uh, was coming. You knew that that's how that worked. But the way she wrote it was, like, almost gentle without being, it wasn't. It wasn't, like, sensual, but it wasn't gross either, you know? It was, like, it it was, I imagine, a difficult thing to write, and she did it in a good way, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's, like, when I was listening to it, I was like, this is, this is kind of not quite beautiful, but it's, you could see, or you could hear, or I guess read, maybe, um, like, the amount of love he had for her in whatever way he loved her mm-hmm. yeah and it was very much like a sort of mother-child relationship but in a very strange alien sort of way yeah yeah definitely and yeah Hoa was such an interesting character because he was kind of just there for some of the first book like he was a stone eater mm-hmm. and he was there but then like yeah you start because like I said I never expected the stone eaters to get like explained which now that I've read the book, I'm like, of course they were going to get explained. She explains everything. Um, <laughs> but the way, yeah, he was kind of talked about, like, added so much more to how, for me, personally, it added so much more to how he talks to her because a lot of the book is in second person because it's Hoa narrating the events. Um, and, like... There was a point I hit in this book where I was like, wait, Ho is telling this to her. Like, why is he doing this? And mm-hmm. <laughs> at which point do they end up to end up at to get to this point? And so when at the end, like, it's like he's telling her so she doesn't forget as a stone eater. I was like, you know what? This makes 
so much beautiful sense in the end. Mm-hmm. I love that es- so yeah. much. Yeah. Especially the way that he like talks about like, oh Nasu, like love, like you loved her so much. Like he he emphasizes the love in the story he's telling so much, which I never really thought about until I got to that point. And I was like, he's trying to make her understand like how much these people cared for each other and why they did things because of that. Mm-hmm. And it ties so well in with the beginning and like that that very last scene because I was so afraid that she was dead and I was like, me too. Like. I, I will trust Jemison to the ends of the earth. Like, I wouldn't be angry if she thought that that's how the story should end. I'd be like, okay, yes, that's how the story should end. But um, <laughs> at the same time, when she, like, wakes up as a stone eater, I was just like, yes! I was <laughs> um, so relieved. <laughs> she's described as looking so cool, too. Like, she's that kind of, like, her hair is turned, like, slightly red, and she's resplendent and stuff, this stone skin, and, like, she just looks really cool. And it was really good. Um, and I think I'm, I'm glad that they did that instead of uh, her just sacrificing herself, even though her sacrifice was so important, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it was. And I think in a large way it still happened because for her family, she's gone now pretty much. Yeah. Um, she's kind of going on to do a new life. But it's so, like, yeah, it, it was... I was so, I had this biggest smile on my face when, like, she was described, because I was like, I'm so glad she's still, like, here, and she <laughs> looks so amazing, like, this cool rock lady. Um, yeah, like, I totally agree. If if Jemison had decided that her sacrifice was going to be it, and she was going to die from all of that, I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. But I'm happier knowing that she lives. Yeah. And now she's kind of in the same place as Alabaster, if he can ever remember who he is. <laughs> yes i was like i hope they reconnect <laughs> i know i was so like amused when alabaster's point of view comes in because at first, yes oh my god well like because first of all it's the most like he's so grumpy and just so incredibly done with everything and like it's the least like romanticized possible way to introduce him but um then like you you know, you realize that it's just before the rifting, and you kind of see how much he loves her, and how much he loved, um, Enon, and, like, how much he loved their son, and I had a lot of feelings about Alabaster, even though he's still technically dead. (laughs) Yeah, I was really confused, because they don't really, like, introduce the fact that Nasun is reading that until, like, a little bit later on. Like, mm-hmm. it just kind of swaps between his things and her. And so when it first came up in the audiobook, I was just like, wait, that's not Nasun. And then eventually it clicked that it was Alabaster. And I was just like, what is happening right now? Like, that's kind of one of the problems with audiobooks is when it swaps perspectives like that. It can be really confusing at first. Um, and so I went back a few times to re-listen to it because I was just kind of like, oh my god, it's it's Alabaster. Like, he's he's not alive, but him talking about Esun and Inan and Corin was just, like, so emotional. <laughs> yeah. I still, I love him, and I can't believe he pulled a Luke Skywalker and went and lived on a sad island for a while. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's my very spoilery review of this book. <laughs> Alabaster pulls a Luke Skywalker. <laughs> you know, it's very true, though. <laughs> um... Yeah, and then there are the other kind of side characters uh, that follow Isun. There's Lurina, who's the doctor who ends up falling in love with her, which was really sweet. Um, 
Yeah, I, I liked their relationship. Mostly, I saw it, like, it was kind of necessary. Like, it was something the character needed. Like, I didn't have any great feelings about them, but um, he was, yeah, he was very sweet. Like, I'm glad that it was a really uncomplicated relationship, which she needed, because, oh boy, having the rest of her has been complicated. Whew, yeah, yeah. Um, and there was, like, there was Tonki, and it's so interesting seeing these names written down. Um, Hyarka and Yika? Yeah, Yika. <laughs> I'm glad you said them before I had to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I'm looking at them like, man, I would not have been able to pronounce this if I had listed the other book. But I was also, <laughs> when I was listening to it, I was like, how is this spelt? Because I have no clue. So it's really cool seeing it written down. Um, they're such fun names to say, too. Um, Tonki, <laughs> Tonki and Hyarka were so cute. <laughs> I, yeah, they were a nice little, like, side couple. I kind of forgot. For a while, I got them confused as to which one was which, but that was okay, because <laughs> they were mostly together anyway. Yeah, I kept getting um, Hyaka and Nika confused, because their names are kind of similar sounding. Um, like, when it started the third book, it had been a while since I'd listened to Obelisk Gate, obviously, like a year or something, and... Um, Oh my god, I just, it started explaining the characters, and I could remember obviously like Nasun and Isun and Shafa, because they were like really big characters, but when it came to like, when I mentioned Lerna, I was like, oh yeah, I kind of remember him, and Tonki, I was like, yeah, I remember Tonki, and it was like, Yarka, and I was like, mmm, who that? And they mentioned Yika, and I was like, are they not the same person? What's happening? I'm so confused. And so I spent like a good third of this book just really confused <laughs> about who was who, because I wasn't reading it. I I remembered... Oh man, Yika, that's so much more fun to say than the way I was pronouncing it. Because <laughs> I was pronouncing it Yika as if it had an apostrophe and the emphasis on the last syllable. Oh yeah, I can see how that makes sense. But it's less fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I remember her because she was the one who was really angry at uh, Essen for bringing down the the Renaris, Renaris? the enemy, uh, the soldiers on their... Re- oh, how was it said? It was really Renanus. cool. Yeah, Renanus. That yeah. was such a cool name. Um, so I was actually, I didn't expect that uh, Yika to be angry for so long. But on the other hand, like, of course she would be. She's like, her people have been driven to cannibalism, like really casual, planned cannibalism. But still, that's what's happening. So, like, of course she's angry. Yeah, I really liked when um she, like, comes in after Isun wakes up from her coma. And Isun's like my one friend kind of thing like she's like wow she's actually my friend and then is and then yika's just like you're the worst (laughs) like how could you do this i'm mad at you and isim was just like you know what i deserve this but i'm still sad and (laughs) i was i really like isim like admitting that someone was her friend and like having that relationship and understanding that anger and dealing with it like the way the relationships are written in these books are just so well done and i think as much as Yika doesn't really have much to do in this book, it really was interesting seeing the way Isun dealt with it. Yeah. I also like the general, the Renanus general. I don't remember her name, though. But the one oh, who, yeah. like, Yika and Essen agreed to kind of let them join their group if they wanted to and she was like she thought that was advantageous and then became this really fierce fighter for their side i thought that was cool yeah is she the one that was like a lorist as well mm, yeah yeah you find out she used to be a lorist that was the other cool thing because she was like introduced as like being super deadly 
And then... Yeah. It's like, by the way, she's also a nerd. <laughs> yeah, she's like, actually, I didn't want to be a general. I just wanted to do lore. Yeah. <laughs> but I had to do it. And, like, at the end when she's like, I'm coming with you because I want to write about the end of the world. And it was just like, oh, okay, sure, why not? I thought that was a really cool, like, little thing for a character to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I liked her a lot. I, mean, I can't remember her name at all, though, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't remember. It had a va- it started with a, with a consonant. It didn't have as many vowels as the a stream of people yeah gosh yeah <laughs> um yeah we already touched a bit on themes but yeah i do kind of i'm just i feel pretty much that we've covered it it's a it was definitely a sort of powerful argument for humanity in a way it was like i was almost afraid that uh, Nasun's philosophy would win out that like there was a part of me that was like maybe the lesson of this is going to be that people are awful and the world should be destroyed like there was <laughs> a part of me that really thought it might end like that and would be like okay reasonable um, but it didn't it ended with this we need to save people because people are valuable and family is valuable and the characters went through such hardships and the ending wouldn't have had such a powerful impact without those hardships. And it just was uh, really powerful, I thought. Yeah, the ending would definitely not have been as powerful without those hardships because it wouldn't have had that, yeah, like, the doubt of whether or not the people did deserve to survive um, or that Nasun was, wasn't was wrong in what she thought. Um it, yeah, it, it said a lot about, like, I mean, it does the thing that a lot of things do, where it's like, humans are terrible, we gotta let them be terrible, because they really do love each other, um, but yeah. it didn't feel like that kind of cheesy kind of thing in this, it, like, it it felt very real and grounded, and, like, people are just people kind of thing, and a really unex- kind of unexpected, because, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know whether or not Nasun was gonna end up being like, I'm gonna save people, I thought she was straight up just gonna turn everyone to stone eaters, um, and, I mean, having finished it now, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense for the story. But at the time, I was really terrified for what was going to happen yeah. um, once Essun turned to stone and couldn't stop her. Yeah. It was... I actually finished this book while I was in a laundromat, which was the least dramatic place that I could possibly <laughs> have been. <laughs> but I'm sure I was, like, wide-eyed, staring at the laundromat, being like, is the world going to end in this book? Because it might. <laughs> I am so glad I was at home, because if I'd been in public, I would have just been so emotional. I, I've made the mistake of, like, listening to these books while driving, and just being like, I listened to Obelisk Gate while driving um, at one point, and there was something that Hoa said to, like, in narration to Esud, and I was just, like, started crying. <laughs> Like, as I was driving, like, this horrified look on my face, and I was like, I hope nobody looks into my car and sees what's happening, because they probably think that, like, I just heard a friend died or something. (laughs) I look so stricken. I, peak crying for me was Obelisk Gate. I didn't cry over Stone Sky, but I had many feelings. Yeah, I'm the same. I didn't, I don't think I cried in this book, but I did get very emotional a few times. Like, quite a lot, actually. It's just, yeah, the mother-daughter thing was just so beautiful, and so emotional and I just I love those relationships so much 
I don't know how likely it is for N.K. Jemisin to win a Hugo for every book in this trilogy. I don't know if there's a rule against that or something, but I think she should. <laughs> I think If there is a rule, they should strike it just for this. <laughs> she was joking on Twitter. Somebody said, like, you're going to have so many rockets in your apartment that you're going to have to move. <laughs> and she's like, I hope not. New York City rent is expensive. <laughs> and I just imagine, like, all these rocket statues, like, sticking out of the windows of an apartment in New York City. <laughs> um, but I do, I do wonder what she's going to do next, because her books in the ones I've read, which is almost all of them at this point, but there's two more that I haven't read. Uh, they've just been getting better and better, I think. And some of her short stories are really good. When she said that she's working on another novel based on a, a short story, which I think is the one that was actually about New York City that came out in a, an issue of Wired not long ago. I, I don't remember that, though. She did an AMA the other day and said exactly which story it was, so you can check out Reddit if you want to uh, check that out. But... Whatever she does next, I'm like, I, I can't imagine how it can be better than this, but also I trust that it will be amazing. Yeah, same. I'm so excited to see where she goes next. I'm going to have to read some of her other books because I've only read these ones so far. I almost picked up one at the library mm. the other day because they have like this little pile of books for sale of like old books. And I was like, oh, N.K. Jemison, I picked up. It was like fourth book in a series. And I was like, okay, wait, <laughs> no, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> The the uh, series is definitely my favorite of all of her stuff, but her other ones have really interesting worlds, too. It's no, it's not stock fancy. It's all really unique. Mm, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, having read these books. Um, I will I will check those out. I'll find them, and I'll read them. But yeah, give E.K. Jemison another Hugo. Just give her all the awards, because she honestly deserves them. Like, even the ones not about fantasy, just give them to her. It's fine. <laughs> All of them. them. (laughs) I can't get over what a good time it is for diverse fantasy and just for, like, fantasy and sci-fi in general. It's There's so much that's being published right now. There's so many series that I'm excited about. Like, we're getting a new Anne Leckie book in, like, a month. Oh, are we? Oh, my God, really? Yeah, Provenance comes out on uh, the third or fourth week of September. Oh, my God. I didn't even know that was coming out. I'm so excited. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad I could share I thought that was next year for some reason. No, it's soon. Oh, awesome. Okay, yes. (laughs) Oh my god, I'm so excited now. (laughs) Yes, it's it's a really good time to follow, like, like, not new writers. I mean, maybe also new writers, but like current writers, you know, like like Anne (laughs) Lucky and and N.K. Jemisin. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yes, with that positive ending... (laughs) Megan, where can we find you online? You can find me at blogfullofwords on Twitter or blogfullofwords.blogspot.com. My newest twine game is called Breach and can be found at either of those places. I also write for starwars.com, Star Wars Insider, and Den of Geek. Awesome. You can find me on Twitter at Wanderlustin, W-A-E-N-D-R-L-U-S-T-I-N. You can also find me at my site, notsafework.com, and also on toshistation.net, and hopefully I'll have something new out in the next week on there. Um, <laughs> you can also find our Twitter at Western underscore Reaches. Feel free to hit us up there about your thoughts about N.K. Jemison and just cool things in general. Um, oh, and we can also be found on um, 
Den of Geeks podcast, Blaster Cannon, where we talk about Star Wars with Paul. Yes, we can. And it is awesome. Go check that out as well. <laughs> um, we'll be back soon with more stuff. Have a good week and don't forget to check the Western Reaches.